You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Episode 133, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me for a fun and informative discussion through expert analysis. Today's expert is Dr. Richard Stramko. He's a Canadian physician who is a co-founder of Aria Health, A-R-Y-A, and they developed an electronic health record. Oh, I know. It gives you shivers. You break out in cold sweats every time you hear EMR or EHR, electronic health record, electronic medical record. It is the bane of existence for physicians and anyone who actually participates in the medical system. We all hate them. And I'm not sure if medicine is the only place this is the case, but it seems that if there's one place where technology completely fails, it is in medicine. We have systems that work against us. They don't make our life more streamlined. They make it slower. They capture more money, but they cost a lot more money. And it's so much harder to do your job. To find the information you need to take care of patients, there may be no worse system than the EHR. Remember when we had paper charts and we would always get upset because the chart would be gone. It'd be off the floor or it'd be in deep storage and it'd take forever to get the information. And you think, boy, if only we had something electronic, something that we could instantaneously tap into what's going on with the patient. And now we have it. Unfortunately, once you get into that chart, you still can't find what you want. In fact, it's incredibly frustrating. You have templates that are often copied and pasted from other physicians with inaccurate diagnoses, or you have allergies that have gone away or allergies that aren't well-defined or someone just gets an upset stomach, it's not actually an allergy. Or perhaps you have diagnoses that someone had 20 years ago. Well, they don't still have pneumonia, but pneumonia is still in the chart, so that's not why they're in the hospital. All these things are perpetuated through these electronic health records. And if you want to find a certain piece of information, it is not easy. Well, today we're going to talk to Dr. Sramko, who is the co-founder of Aria Health again, and he says he's developed an EHR that solves a lot of those problems. It's inexpensive improves workflow, and actually doesn't require the 
days of training that you have to get when you switch to a larger system like Epic or Cerner. But another thing I think you'll find really interesting in this conversation is we're going to talk about the Canadian healthcare system and the fact that it's very similar in many ways to the U.S. system, even though I thought it was really not. And once we start talking about the similarities as far as the government payers and how the billing works and how it's actually a private practice, I think you'll find that the characterizations as Americans we make of the Canadian healthcare system, much like the characterizations of the American healthcare system that Canadians make, really are probably inaccurate. And so there's obviously, as usual, a lot more nuance in sort of the, the systems themselves. And Dr. Stramko has worked in both. And so he has a good feel for the differences, the strengths, the weaknesses, and, you know, how Canadians are better and Americans are better. So I think that's a really great discussion and something that, even if you're not super interested in electronic health records, you will definitely find the discussion about the different healthcare systems very interesting. But first, our word from our sponsor. Before we get into the show, here's a quick message from MR Insurance, a small business that helps physicians with their disability insurance needs. Michael L. Relvis is a CFP professional and insurance agent committed to helping physicians nationwide with their term life and disability insurance needs. He provides an objective, transparent, and education-focused process that aims to help physicians make prudent decisions and avoid overcomplicating things. He exclusively offers own occupation disability insurance policies for residents, fellows, and attending physicians. We know he'd be happy to help you with whatever your needs are. You can find Michael at drpodcastnetwork.com slash mrinsurance or contact him at 800-817-4522. Finally, thanks for tuning into the show, obviously, and please subscribe to the show if you have not already. And if you haven't been with me since the start, please go back to the archives, find a couple of titles that you find interesting, because we talked about really all sorts of things, not just COVID and not just healthcare issues, some things that are related to ethics and personal health and even finance. So I'm sure there'll be something there for about everyone. Make sure you check those out. And you can always email me with interview ideas or topic ideas at theparadoxshow at protonmail.com. But without further ado, building an electronic record that will make you pull your hair out with Dr. Richard Stramko of Aria Health. Enjoy. Well, I'm here with Dr. Richard Stamko. He's a geriatrician and internal medicine physician at St. Peter's and Jarovinsky Hospitals in Hamilton, Ontario. He's also assistant professor at McMaster University. He's a co-founder of Aria Health, which is what we'll discuss a little bit today, but we're also he served as a CMO for Relic Health, which I guess works with remote disease, chronic disease management, um, which we can talk about a little bit wow. too. He consults for Soteria Health, and he's got his MD from the University of Toronto and Behavioral Neurology Fellowship at UCSF in San Francisco. You're actually back-to-back San Francisco uh, interviewees today. Nice. And uh, co-founded an online education tool for helping caregivers with people taking care of people with dementia, uh, which can be found at iGeriCare, I guess would be the way to say it, but it's www.igericare.ca. And that's used through a lot of California, but... Dr. Stramko, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure being here, for sure. Well, it's always great having people who are from, you know, foreigners. You're just right across the border. But now I feel like Canada's a long ways away because they've closed the border with this silly uh, COVID. Yeah, totally. Honestly, I've spent a lot of time in the U.S., so I feel like an honorary American. And I think in a lot of ways, I think more like an American than I do a Canadian. I'm like, <laughs> let's just go and get stuff done. Uh, well, you know? it- it's, it's funny you say that because actually that was the first thing I thought of when we were setting this up. I thought, um, this is the, un, this is the, uh, I guess the unfair sort of characterization of Canada from an American, right? Yeah. Like, you know, especially when you look at the healthcare systems, 
we see the healthcare system as some monolithic uh, national sy- system, which is very different than ours, which is, uh, you know, it's not a free market system, as you know, you've yeah. practiced or at least worked in it, but it sort of is, right? And the Canadian system we see as someone that's totally a nationalized system. Can you describe sort of from your perspective how they are similar and different, I guess, for the, our American audience? Yeah, and I, I think this is the big thing. I mean, it's not nationalized. So a nationalized healthcare system is the NHS, right? So we have provincial healthcare systems. All of the hospitals, for instance, are for are not for profit private institutions. So basically, like all of the nurse pra- nurses practicing aren't, you know, they're not uh, they're not paid directly by the government or employed by the government. They're employed by hospitals. All of the physicians are private contractors or the large majority of them that are just paid by the government. So basically, it's a system that's provincially administered through a whole bunch of private not for profit institutions and private contractors, but paid generally um, by, you know, by the, the federal government and provincial government, kind of they share the responsibilities for paying. And obviously, there's a lot of oversight in terms of governance and stuff like that. But it's not it's not exactly how how it's kind of pointed out to be like like the NHS, where if you're a doctor, you're an employee of the actual state, right? So it's quite right. And so, that. and when you say NHS, you're talking about the British system. Yeah, so yeah, for people who might National know, Health Service right. in in the UK, yeah, yeah. So I guess you know when you look at the United States, if uh, you're getting government assistance for health your healthcare, we'd say you know Medicaid if you're not uh, if you're not yeah. elderly. And that's a that's a state administered program that is paid for by the federal government, and I think the states kick in some money as well. Is that I mean that's kind of a sort of comparable? I guess your provinces are far far larger than our states, yeah. but not as populous, I guess. No, I think, and I mean, like I, I, the last time I checked, and I mean, what it's like one hundred and you know one hundred and forty or one hundred and fifty million Americans are either covered by Medicare or Medicaid, right? So it's like a large swath of the population, and there's trade offs either way. I have to say this too. Canadians are like, yeah, great. Socialized medicine. It's awesome. I'm like, well, where do we get our drugs from? And where do we get our medical devices from? Right. And like, <laughs> where do we get our EMRs from? Like all of this progress that takes place, you get from the U S however, it's like, we don't have that problem in the middle, you know, segment of the population where people are going bankrupt or not being able to pay for their bills. If they get a cancer diagnosis, diagnosis or unpredictable, you know, event that takes place, we are not covered by Medicaid and you're not covered by Medicare. Right. So it's like it's trade offs. And I think that's what people don't get. It's like all good or all bad. It's like, no, that's it's not the case. Sometimes it's good and sometimes it's better and sometimes it's a lot worse. I think the thing that frustrates me about Canadians is they get a little bit smug and arrogant about the system when it does function quite poorly sometimes, not in all cases. And they don't recognize where all the technologies are coming from that drive progress and care within their system. Right. It's like they're all reading the New England Journal or JAMA. Right. They're not they're not getting the latest RCT from, you know, Canadian Medical Association Journal. So it's smart right. that yeah, bothers that, me. Yeah. And the progress that I love and the go get and attitude that you find a lot more prevalent in the U.S. is what I like. But the compassion and empathy for every member of your society is what I tend to like in Canadian healthcare. you know. Yeah. Oh, sure. Totally. And I think that's uh, that's something we don't really recognize the nuance. As Whenever you look at things in the media, there's always this sort of black and white, and maybe they recognize there's a gray somewhere, but it's hard for people to, I think, get a feel for sort of how the things are similar and different. And I think this is a good example that, that you know, not everything's rosy over here, because if it was, then we wouldn't have all this, you know, rancor for, you know, what we do with the healthcare system. I'm sure it's not 
a lot different in Canada. Maybe the solutions you see, you seek are different, in, but essentially you have people who have you know not enough care or the care the care they want they're not able to get or you know, the pay's too expensive or the waits are too long. Well, we have a lot of those same discussions in the United States, right? I mean, different scales and maybe different types of problems, but essentially we kind of have healthcare systems that sort of don't work. It's oftentimes. And, and some of it too is like um, what I was blown away by actually, you know, coming from my Canadian background, it's like, oh, we take care of like, you know, we take care of the less fortunate so much better. When I started you know, doing more uh, consulting and, and being the chief medical officer of Relic, like our, our entire market was the US. And so <laughs> and now and now getting back into that space again um, and starting to recognize once you started digging deep, all of there's like, you know, the Medicaid paid processes, but then all of the parallel programs that existed, I would, you know, you, like, let's say in, in Texas, for instance, you'd find somebody that was a little bit less fortunate and you know, maybe first generation immigrant, and there would be like three programs set up for them and their kids, you know, and I was like, what, there's that. And there's that, but you, you never hear about all of this stuff. So I was like, it was quite compassionate. It is set up for the less fortunate, but it's not remote. I mean, it's not uniform throughout every state like that. You kind of go from a state by state kind of basis, right? Yeah. Well, and I think it's probably more and localities, right? Yeah. So you, you'll have the rural healthcare might be very different from what you have in the urban areas. And, you know, if you just even read Alexis Tocqueville, he talks about the organizations and sort of that's how people took care of each other rather than using a centralized or sort of government arm. It's now we're sort of a little bit more if the government does more, but it's kind of that same system. So it, you may look like things aren't taken care of, but in fact, there are backstops or, you know, churches or things that are taking care of these things. And there are holes and there are people who've slipped through and those that's the problems. Those are the things we're always um, trying to yeah. work out. And and then there are also people that can't, um, can't receive help. Right. And I think that's the other thing is like, there's compassion and then there's blind compassion where it's like, you're going to spend billions of dollars on people that can't be saved. And no matter how much programming you put in place or how many dollars you put in place, like, you're not going to alter the trajectory of their life when they're 45 and they experienced all the trauma that they ever needed to when they were five to 12. And you know what I mean? And so it's right. like, that's the hard yeah. part too. It's like, well, look, there's, you know, poor people or there's drug addicts that we just, you know, if we just spent enough money, it would go away. And it's like some elements of the universe are not alterable. Yes. <laughs> we should absolutely. try. Absolutely. It, well, right. We should try. I mean, but, it, if, if you're in medicine, you absolutely recognize there are things that you can fix. You can't make someone stop smoking. You can't make someone stop drinking. You can't alter lots of behaviors and make people do the right thing. And heck, you can't do it yourself most of the time, right? Like, you know, I don't exercise enough or whatever. And so uh, the failures as, as human beings, that's sort of part of being a human being and, and recognize what you can change and what you can't, you know, especially like 20 minute visit. <laughs> Let, let's, let's talk briefly about what it means to be an internal medicine physician in Canada. Yeah. So uh, you're a geriatrician, internal medicine. I don't know if you work in a hospital, but explain what it's like to be, um, I mean, do you have a private practice where you just like have a building and you have a couple of partners or are you in larger groups? How does it usually work in Canada? Yeah. Or is that, maybe it's not a fair question. No, no. I mean, generally it's like, there's, there's two kind of groups. There's like academic practice. So I work in a hospital and so I have space provided to me by the hospital and an administrative assistant by the hospital. I spend time uh, in the hospital doing inpatient consultation and some general internal medicine. And then I spend a good amount of time in the outpatient sphere. Um, and then a little bit of time on a rehabilitation ward. 
also. And then that's in contrast to like our partners in the community who set up a private practice. So they, you know, they hire, they rent their own office space, they hire their own medical office assistants and they form a partnership. So it's a little bit different. So geriatrics um, is a two-year specialty in Canada and internal medicine is four years. So we don't do any primary care in Canada in terms of the internal medicine. I remember studying the internal medicine examination material for the U.S. And I was like, what? The pap smear? What the heck is, why can't, what is that? You know, I'm like so far out of it and stuff. So, um, but yeah, so it's a little bit, it's a little bit different, um, but uh, there's tons of overlap, obviously. Right? Yeah. yeah. And so I spent a lot of times in, in the geriatric practice. Um, I did the behavioral neurology fellowship. So sometimes I'll see more complicated cases like rapidly progressive dementias and, you know, interesting movement disorders and stuff on top of like basic geriatric care in terms of frailty and falls and delirium and polypharmacy and stuff like that. And that obviously led to your development of the, or at least has, I'm not sure exactly what your role was in the development of the, the, I get, I don't know how to describe it. I guess the website that helps people yeah. take care of people with dementia to, I guess, briefly explain that because that's something that, I mean, you don't have to be a Canadian to use this <laughs> with yeah. the internet. You can, anyone can go there and access oh, it. Well, I mean, I think you, you know it, right. It's like, you've got like a spiel where it's like you educate people on all the various aspects of what you do. Challenges when I'm seeing somebody that has dementia and their caregivers, I see them for like an hour and 15 minutes and they're exhausted at the end. And, yeah. and then I try, I'm like, and then I give them a diagnosis of Alzheimer's and their world is completely, you know, collapsing around them. And then I try and educate them on that. You know what I mean? It's like the worst <laughs> possible time you could ever think of. Or then it's like an OT or a social worker who you pay whatever, you know, 30, 40 bucks an hour to educate people on highly repetitive material. So the idea behind that was um, putting high quality evidence informed instructional design, e-learning resources together. So people will you know, the, the content will get transferred. They will retain this information because it's high quality, but they can access it from the comfort of their own homes. And also it's like, it's catered to what stage or what type of dementia you have, or if you're starting a specific treatment, or if you have, you know, behavioral and psychological symptoms, it's not, here's, here's a website, everything you need to know about <laughs> dementia. It's like, I can, I have a prescription pad for this app where it's like, okay, well, you're just, you just have mild cognitive impairment and you need to know about brain health. I'll just tick off two lessons. I'll give them a learning prescription and away they go. Um, if they've been diagnosed with dementia, then I'll say the different types of dementia and how dementia is treated. I'm starting a cholinesterase inhibitor. Look out for these side effects. And if they're advanced, then it's like, you know, psychological symptoms of dementia and how to be safe with somebody at home. So it's just more customized and a nuanced prescription. Um, to, to learning for caregivers and people that are diagnosed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I imagine it, much like if saying the word cancer, as soon as you say the word Alzheimer's, no one remembers anything, right? I'm like you almost have to have another visit to talk about sort of how to manage things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's go. And when, when I saw your information on that in EHR, why does Canada need EHR? Because again, I'm dumb American, yeah. right? I assume, Oh, you guys have a nationalized system. You have no. sort of, automated record keeping. They all, all these computers are all talk to each other and all your diagnoses, wherever you are in Saskatchewan, or you go to, you know, Nova Scotia, all your information just travels perfectly and there's no problem at all. So I'm guessing that's entirely 100%. Yes. Wrong. It's entirely 100% wrong. We have a very <laughs> fragmented system and an aging system, right? So like, you know, people are, people are patting themselves on the back in 2021 if they're implementing, you know, Epic or Cerner at their hospital, right? 
Yay, yay. It's like, look at us. We've upgraded from, you know, Meditech from 20 years ago to like Epic from 15 years ago. You know, they're like, yay, this is so great. And then the outpatient space is uh, very fragmented with a bunch of private providers as well. There's no centralized provincial service anywhere. They're working on doing kind of like um, uh, the health information exchange concept, right? That, that you guys have in the US, right? So like there are, that's happening in the background, but you have a very fragmented system uh, with a lot of just private providers, which is no different, same in the US. But what is similar is that everybody rates their EMRs as crappy, right? <laughs> like the <highly> technical <laughs> term, but like, I mean, I think you've seen those Stanford polls year after year after year. It's like, 2006, 2008, 2010, 2014, 2018, all physicians hate their EHRs and it doesn't matter, right? It's like they take up more time than you want them to. You're spending all of your time looking at the screen. None of them are intuitive. None of them are simple. They cost too much money. They're causing burnout. Like your technology that's supposed to facilitate your practice and improve what you do, like it does in all other areas of your life, is actually hindering and causing like hindering progress, impairing your workflows, causing you pain and causing you financial distress. It's like, there's no worse thing for a doctor than their EHR. And that's why we got into this game. It's like, wait a second, it was 2021. And there's like, there's no Apple. There's no Apple of EHRs. There's no, there's no Android, right? Or yeah, right. So why, you know, why isn't this happening? And we think there's, a huge need for that. And even stuff like too, like I know, you know, let's say Dr. Crono, right, has made a lot of progress in the US over recent years. And I, before we started out kind of moving down this pathway, I was like, let's get a demo set up and see what that looks like. It's got to be great. You know, we're related to the people from Google or something like that, right? I log in and I was like, oh, this is exactly the same as everything else, you know? Well, and you know, one of the arguments made by people who don't like the EHR here in the United States, they say, well, the problem with the United States EHR is that it is essentially designed to maximize revenue capture. So you have um, you have a system that's in place to smooth through the billing system, to make sure you can code your diagnoses quickly and your visits. And um, and so because the system can kind of do one of two things. You can either store the information well for your, for your patient in their allergies and surgery, all the sort of stuff that you need to know about your patient, or you can... Make sure that the billing goes really well. And when it comes down to any sort of office or hospital, they're going to say, well, you know, we, we can have all the greatest, most streamlined sort of uh, capture of information, or we can make sure we get paid for what we're doing. And it makes, and so they always choose the payment thing. Is that accurate or is that, or is that too simplified? I think it's, I think it's a convenient excuse uh, to, <laughs> to, to deal with the status quo, right? And so like part of what we've done, right, is like, um, sometimes you need to structure data and sometimes you don't need to structure data and providing people with the option to do that makes sense. So let's say for instance, on our past medical history, you can, you can type in and SNOMED CT codes will come up and you can favorite them and you can just press buttons instead of having to type out and search everything. It's like, you've got your 15 favorite diagnosis. You can just click them really quickly. You could also tag ICD nine or ICD 10 codes, or you could not like, if you don't want to, there's a lot of physicians that don't want to do that, but like, uh, and then in our medication platform, for instance, like you can add medications, structured tag from a database medications with doses and routes and all of those things. But, you know, you have your 15 favorite that are really easily accessible. So uh, when we were using, 
you know, Epic in certain institutions that I've worked in, people wouldn't update the issue and plan list because it was too challenging to keep it up to date because it would take six clicks for every issue. If you remove those clicks and make it intuitive and you're not looking around or searching for stuff all the time, then people are more likely to keep that information up to date. And if you can keep all of that information up to date, it's relevant to the patient, why wouldn't you capture more billing data that's relevant to the hospital? So it's, it's kind of like looking for that win-win and looking for the nice overlap between those two, uh, not competing interests, right? Like you, you, you make them uh, on the same team and you can find workflows to do it. It just takes a lot of thought. And you know, part of the reason I think it doesn't happen, um, you know, I've, I've been in around kind of enterprise software development for about 10 years now. And I've been involved in many different companies, you know, not a lot of the ones I didn't, didn't list in my bio. And what you'll do is you'll find uh, product managers. And I don't know why I quoted that, but they're like, they're product <laughs> managers. It's like, yeah, I'm, a product, out, right? I'm a product manager and a room full of engineers and they'll, they'll sit there and they'll argue with you. Who's a subject matter, subject matter expert who understands intricately what the workflow looks like and how it could right. be most efficient, but there's tension that happens between you and them. And they'll argue with you for hours and hours and hours about why it should be done differently. Whereas we decided like, this is by doctors for doctors, it's going to be about our workflows and we were going to control the engineering staff to make sure that what we wanted to do got done. And that's a huge difference. Even if you, and I think the other thing too, is like, there's a good amount of overlap or, or there's a, a necessary amount domain knowledge for a development process and a technology team that I think a successful physician entrepreneur in the health tech space should have. It's not just any doctor that you pull off the street that's like, oh yeah, hey, it's Jim. Let's just pull Jim in off the street. He's been a practicing physician for 25 years. You really need to understand, well, if I design my UI UX like this, then these are going to be the outcomes. And this is how complicated it's going to be. And this is how expensive it's going to be. And this is you know, how challenging it's going to be to maintain that. Because um, once you can start pulling all of that information together, like the physician workflow, plus the UI UX, plus the technology in the background and manage the developers to get it done. I think that's when you finally can have a, a winning process. Yeah. And when people talk about workflow, and I think that's a real important thing because when we had Epic come into our house, our hospital, we had Cerner initially, and then we moved to Epic. It was always about, well, the work, we want to find out what your workflow is and we're going to design some sort of, you know, program around this, which of course never happened. Uh, that, we had all these ideas and it ended up, oh, by the way, here's what it is. And now you need to design your workflow around this. And essentially what it is, is of course, you just have, like what you said, just you have more clicks and more things you're doing to get a simple thing accomplished. Now, yes, everything's in one place, but it's you know harder to find and it takes a lot of effort and it takes you a long, you know, just, it's just frustrating. Like you said, it causes burnout and problems. How do you, how do you do that where you maintain, because I mean, every place is a different culture. How do you do it so you maintain the, the, the same, uh, you can have a single product that can actually accomplish that with also knowing there are different cultures in different places. Is it generally workflows are pretty much the same and that, that as long as you make somebody that has that in mind ahead of time, that you it it's easier to engineer the right product? Uh, yeah, I think it's a few things. Like one is um, starting with starting with simpler workflows. So when we first started out, we started with specialist outpatient workflows. 
And then we moved into, you know, uh, general practitioner workflows, which are slightly more complex, you know, vaccinations and uh, maternal care and growth charts and all of those things. And then, um, and, and I think it's kind of like um, living by the old saying, like measure twice and cut once. We, we measure 10 times and cut once. And we'll have extensive arguments and debates amongst the co-founders and product team about where buttons are placed and how we can decrease the <laughs> click count. So it will be very painstaking meetings that are long, but once you put in the effort and passion and work into making that happen, then, then and only then I think, can you come up with these workflows that are really simple and, and intuitive. Um, and to your point about the epic Cerner side of things, like one thing that kind of perplexes me, I don't poo poo them either. I'm not like, oh, they're, they're terrible. I'm like, they provide a valuable service to centralize information for large hospital systems and de-risk implementation, right? Like the best thing about them is that they're everywhere. And so for a hospital administrator to go through that process, they don't have to have a heart attack when they're implementing it. Right, yeah. You know, notwithstanding the fact that they can cost like 200 million to a billion dollars, right? Like notwithstanding that very crucial piece of information but right now without any alternatives they provide a great service they're just they're extraordinarily expensive for the type of technology that you get you know um it's just it's mind-boggling and the other thing that i find problematic with them is that um the consultancy fees and implementation fees like i get it they're a business and they're just maximizing profits but from our end I remember sitting in a Cerner implementation and arguing with 10 other physicians, all of whom are getting paid like $200 an hour. Like, well, are we going to repeat our Ventolin NEBS like Q4H or Q6H? I'm like, and team IBM is over there sitting in the corner at four or $500 an hour. And team Deloitte is sitting in the corner over there at four to $500 an hour. And it's like, you've done this before. Like this hospital down the road just did this why are we sitting here collectively, you know, charging like $3,000 or $4,000 an hour to order, you know, vital signs when like we have national guidelines on how COPD or asthma is supposed to be treated. Like why are we arguing at this large expense for these things? And so that's kind of an interesting aspect that we can completely eliminate, which is a huge cost. And then the other side of things is um, the training right? So like when I go in for my Epic implementation training, it's like, it's two days and I barely get it or understand it. And then I'm trying to figure stuff out for the next, like, you know, four months, six months, whatever. And like, there are super users that are amazing that you like watch and you're like, Oh my gosh, I wish, I wish it was that guy or that girl. Like they're incredible, but that's not the majority of people. And like two days of training again, it's like it's money, it's days you're out of the OR it's time that, you know, they're spending training. So like we've gotten people up and running on our platform. Uh, some of them watch a demo and are like, I don't need training. I'm good. Right. And so like, we don't have to charge exorbitant uh, implementation fees. We can pass on those savings to the customer because they can watch our, you know, very comprehensive library of videos. They'll get an hour of training and because it's easy to use, they just go. So they're saving money. They're saving time. It's less headache. Um, you know, other things that we do are like being able to spin up instances really quickly. So you sign up for an account, you've got an account, you want to share it with users, you share it with your users. Like, uh, you're not asking us for a new account and waiting, you know, a month before you get another person up and running and 
paying a huge upfront cost for every person that gets up and running. It's like, we really want to give power back to our users um, so that they're not having to ask us every two seconds to get something done and they're not waiting. You know, they feel like they're in control of their time and their security infrastructure or their, uh, you know, EHR infrastructure. Yeah. And and that's something you, so you provided both for the outpatient setting and then also for hospitals they, and they imagine they communicate too. So yeah, for the most part, it's the outpatient setting. So it's like, you know, okay. a lot of these principles I'm describing are like what we've applied to the outpatient setting. They could, they could be uh, one day applied to the inpatient setting. Hopefully yeah. they will be, but that's a, that's a long way off. Right. <clears throat> sure. You know, when my wife's office got an, an EHR there, the big question was, well, you know, it wasn't a question, I guess it was a statement from the company that said, you're going to be so much more efficient because everything's going to be, you're going to template it and all this stuff, right? And you're going to be able to, your throughput's going to be much better. You're going to spend less time managing sort of the charting and all that stuff. And of course, none of that ended up being true, right? It ended up being taking longer and you could do less appointments. Now, the revenue capture was, you know, much better <laughs> from the coding standpoint, but uh, when it came to like throughput and actual work, the actual work in the on the computer was actually, I don't want to say onerous, but it was, it was more than sort of what was advertised. So when you say, oh, our process is a lot easier. I mean, when you, how do you measure it? Do you say, okay, we know to accomplish 10 tasks, it takes this many clicks or this much time in this system versus our system. Is that, is that how people in the industry measure this sort of thing? Or I mean, or is that even something they don't measure? Yeah. And there's like, there's the academic side of it, right? Where you can do very detailed click counts and how long it takes you from start to end. And then there's, I, I've done a bit of like e-health training. I started a master's in e-health and was like, got a few <laughs> courses in and then this started to take off. So I was like, well, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to finish this when I'm already doing this. So let's just go this way, but learned a fair amount about kind of the background academic stuff, but really like, um, you know, the dollars and cents are the most compelling arguments. So like a case, like a case study, right. For business school. So, um, we did a more in depth one with a thriving outpatient specialist practice, high volume. Um, and so the things we looked at were MOA time, right. So that's one fairly large expense that you have to incur as a physician. What is that? I don't even know what that uh, acronym Secretary, is. medical office assistant. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. So like if you can uh, if you can decrease their time, then you have to have less MOAs or maybe perhaps a 0.5 MOA. So he, he was able to get go from like a full-time MOA down to a half-time MOA to accomplish all of the same tasks that were required. He was able to increase um, the number of consults he saw, like new consults he saw by 50% in the day. And then... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, obviously that that's it. And like, and then he saved money. So like compared to like a previous EMR where he was paying like $500 a month, you know, he was paying $300 a month for ours, for our, our basic setup. So like by the time all of the costs and, you know, things factored in, he was between, you know, 90 and $96,000 per year, uh, in the positive both with the savings and increased revenue. So like, that's a fairly compelling argument where it's like, okay, well, you know, you're, well, everything all around, like you're definitely seeing more patients because your revenue went up by a huge amount. And not on top of that, you like, you feel better. The colors look good. The interface doesn't make you want to scream or doesn't make you want to have a seizure because of the fluorescent <laughs> greens and pinks and yellows and stuff. It's just a very beautiful, clean interface, smooth workflows. So yeah, so it's, it's working out that way. And, and so for the, in Canada, you're going to, have the private, like you said, private practice. So they have, they have the option of whatever EMR they want to use if they, 
and I imagine they have to probably have some sort of electronic record. I mean, that's it, it, almost the way it is in the States now, too. And they just buy it themselves, and they just whatever product they want, and that's sort of how... And they get paid based on how do they get paid in Canada? Because in the United States, obviously, it depends on what level visit you have. Is it similar to that in Canada? So you have to have some sort of billing aspect to, you know, someone comes into ear check versus someone who comes in with abdominal pain. You have to work them up. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's similar. Like, we have different different levels of consults generally depending on the complexity and the time that it takes to see them, right? So, like, you know, a basic consult might take 30 or 45 minutes and then an hour, hour and 15, hour and 30 and also depend, there are modifiers depending on how many chronic diseases and stuff like that, that they have. So it's very, it's very similar in that sense. You have to capture obviously all of the ICD, you know, 10 or nine codes, depending on the province that you're, you're, um, you're billing in. So yeah, it's fairly, okay. And, and as you said, people can choose, uh, what vendor they use. There's a, a little bit of kind of nepotism that happens, right. Once you get these monopolies in sure. place, like that have the government connection. So certain provinces right it's like oh yeah you only have these three options you can only, or anybody can play but we're going to pay you extra money if we use if you use these three options kind of thing where you're like oh, yeah you know come on anti-competition bureau like where are you guys we need you we need you that would when they're running the show that's not the way it ever works so i went through only about a, a quarter of your bio and all the different entrepreneurial activities you've been in uh you I mean, I think the most I've done today, you know, I, I made an egg sandwich and I feel like I've done nothing compared to what you've been accomplished so far. You've obviously had that entrepreneurial, you know, and that's why you said you kind of like the U.S. I can go get them sort of more willing to kind of fall down and get up and take off and do stuff. Right. I mean, that which is maybe not as much of a Canadian trait. Is that sort of what you're saying in general? It's a little bit just different sort of cultural attitude towards enterprise. Yeah, I think so. And uh it, it's the it's the trade-off with like slightly and like slightly more kind of collectives there are there, but i think it's changing in canada like quite quickly like you know there are a lot of people that are putting themselves out there are lots of great companies that are doing amazing stuff and like robotic space ai space fintech like it is really growing and, and changing quite rapidly and there's some amazing like toronto is a huge tech hub right now like it's posed poised in the next few years to outpace funding in silicon valley Right. And like, I was reading these things the other, the, the other day. So like, I don't have the most in-depth statistics, but it was a mind boggling trait. You're like, what Toronto crazy <laughs> in terms of the funding that's happening. So it is a really remarkable place, but I think in general, there's, there's a, a long way, a long way to go. Right. And so that sure there's a problem. I'm going to fix it. I don't rely on government. Like people really love government programs uh, here as a whole. So yeah, which is not again. It's not bad. It's just, it's just the the trade off. You can't have it all, right? It's different, it right? It it's different, and that's a cultural difference. And I guess that we'll just leave that cultural because that's probably the best way I can describe yeah. it. All right. So you've had lots of entrepreneurial enterprises. Tell us about one of your gigantic failures or flops, and then what you learned from it. I'm sure you've had at least one, if not a couple. Oh yeah. I mean, um, I think I think it's like we had like very early on, we had like a hospital, uh, hospital system. Like our first project was like handover system, which is still used in hospitals to, to date. Um, but you know, we, we got it up and running and we had some pretty compelling evidence in terms of like, Hey, this works on your system and spent like so much time dealing with the hospital and dealing with, 
all of the physicians involved and like you have to sell it really hard if you're going to do process change in a hospital environment it's so much harder oh right and so like we spent so much time advocating and went through all the privacy and security hoops and it like took like two years and like we're right at the end where we're in this negotiation phase with the cfo and the cfo was like okay great like tell me what you want like so like we put this like business proposal in and submitted it and then they were like and you know what we decided we really need we need a chief innovation officer and so they hired a chief innovation officer and then they hired like a bunch of minions under that chief innovation officer and like i don't know what the salary would have been for this guy but like right and they're like and then and then they basically started from scratch so after we've gone through this entirely innovative process like you know um designing it from the ground up physician workflows advocacy privacy security like we're innovating we've done it <laughs> we've built it then it's like they're kind of they stop and they're like well we're just gonna sit back for a second and we're gonna figure out how to do innovation and so and so it's just like the project just fell by the wayside and it was it was soul crushing after spending that much time and energy and effort on something um only to have it kind of just fizzle out, but um, just to see it fizzle out. And honestly, like it was like, it, w- it was a very challenging time. And like I spent hundreds of hours, thousands of hours, maybe, I don't know. Uh, and only to kind of being bumped out at the end by somebody who like thought they knew better than me. Again, it's like a non-physician trying to figure out how to do innovation. We're like, we, oh, sure. We just did it. Like, can't you see what all of this is? Um, but a very valuable learning point because then we decided like we need to get away from these toxic cultures where they actually don't have any interest in doing innovation. They set up a parallel universe and pay like millions of dollars to like try and figure stuff out when they don't have the domain expertise necessary in most cases to figure it out. So that was a very important learning experience being like, these are not our people. Like this is not what we need to be doing we're going to spend our entire lives being frustrated and not being able to build the product we want or move fast enough. So we need to change our, our business model, get to physicians directly that we can work with who understand what we're doing and physicians who are actually the decision makers. So they can pull the trigger. I got this. You like it? You want to pay for it? Great. We're done. Okay. Awesome. That's how most business transactions should be. I mean, I would think like, you know, there aren't people you advertise, but there's not a lot of the software change. You're not, you're not going in selling it every single time. I would think that's probably not usually the case with lots of products, right? I mean, do you like Adobe Acrobat? Here's, here's what it is. I mean, I know these are more complicated pro- products, but in some ways, you know, it's you've word of mouth and it's like, Hey, this is what we've got. It's good. So buy it. <laughs> totally. totally. Well, Dr. Richard Stramko from uh, co-founder of RE Health. Thanks so much for being on the paradox. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Dr. Stramko. And before we end, don't forget to reach out to MR Insurance Consultants, where their goal is to assist physicians in obtaining the most comprehensive coverage available to fit their unique situation. Reach out for both excellent and quality service at drpodcastnetwork.com slash mrinsurance. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.